Welcome to the 425th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, and I'm thrilled to be hosting the program this week. You can join me every day this week on COVID Calls, where I'll be speaking with some incredible individuals whose voices I think need to be heard as we continue to navigate the pandemic landscape including clinicians, epidemiologists, historians of science, medicine, and public health, and in a special episode on Friday afternoon, a graduate student roundtable. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls with me throughout the week. Our show is live and set for tomorrow starting at 4 p.m. Eastern with Dr. Kathleen Baczynski and Dr. Johanna Mellis to talk about risk, sports, and COVID. To find the program, go to COVID Calls on YouTube TV, its YouTube TV channel, and you can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID Calls, me at Steer Williams, or Scott Knowles at US of Disaster. Help, to help spread word about COVID Calls, feel free to send suggestions for future guests and future topics to either myself or to Scott. As of today, February 22nd, 2022, there have been 5,901,612 reported deaths worldwide from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. The COVID-19 death rate for the U.S. continues to rise as we approach 1 million Americans who have died of COVID-19. 65% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated. Wyoming and Alabama remain states with the lowest vaccination rates at 50%, while Maine, Rhode Island, and Vermont are at 80%. And that's really a, a striking difference in the U.S. alone and one that frustratingly to me remains outside of the central narratives of the pandemic in the U.S. But the numbers and the statistics are just that. In reality, we know their life's lost their parents and partners, neighbors and friends, and children. As a way to humanize those numbers, each day this week, I'll tell a story of someone who's died in this pandemic or a story of advocacy, someone who's impacted the pandemic in our lives in some way. That's something that Scott started and I'll, I'll continue. And this obituary today is a particularly a painful one. And it also probably will be for our listeners to COVID calls and to, for my two guests today. It comes from Ellen Berry and Alex Traub from the New York Times from yesterday, February 21st, 2022. Paul Farmer, pioneer of global health, dies at 62. As a medical student, Dr. Farmer decided to build a clinic in Haiti. It grew into a vast network serving some of the world's poorest communities. Paul Farmer, a physician, an anthropologist, and a humanitarian who gained global acclaim for his work delivering high quality health care some of the world's poorest people, died on Monday on the grounds of a hospital and university he helped to establish in Butaro, Rwanda. He was 62. Partners in Health, the global public health organization that Dr. Farmer helped found, announced his death in a statement that did not specify the cause. Dr. Farmer attracted public renown with Mountains Beyond Mountains, the quest of Dr. Paul Farmer, a man who would cure the world. 2003 book by Tracy Kidder that described the extraordinary efforts he would make to care for patients, sometimes walking hours to their homes to ensure that they were taking their medication. He was a practitioner of social medicine, arguing there was no point in treating patients for disease, only to send them back into the desperate circumstances that contributed to them in the first place. Illness, he said, has social roots and must be addressed through social structures. His work with Partners in Health significantly influenced public health strategies for responding to tuberculosis, HIV, and Ebola. During the AIDS crisis in Haiti, he went door to door to deliver antiviral medication, confounding many in the medical field who believed it would be impossible for poor rural people to survive the disease. Though he worked in the world of development, he often took a critical view of the international aid, preferring instead to work with local providers and leaders and he often lived amongst the people he was treating, moving his family to Rwanda and Haiti for extended periods. News of Dr. Farm Farmer's death rippled through the worlds of medicine and public health on Monday. 
There are so many people that are alive because of that man, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, said in a brief interview, adding that she wanted to compose herself before speaking further. Dr. Anthony Fauci, President Biden's top medical advisor, broke down in tears during an interview in which he said he and Dr. Farmer had been like soul brothers. When you talk about iconic giants in the field of public health, he stands pretty much among a very, very short list of people, said Dr. Fauci, who first met Dr. Farmer decades ago when Dr. Farmer was a medical student. He added, he called me his mentor, but in reality, he was more of a mentor to me. In the latter part of his career, Dr. Farmer became a public health luminary, the subject of a 2017 documentary, Bending the Ark, and the author of 12 books. In 2020, he was awarded the One Million Bergruen Prize, given annually to the influential thought leader. The chairman of the prize committee said Dr. Farmer helped to reshape our understanding of what it means to treat health as a human right and the ethical and political obligations that follow. Dr. Farmer, who never settled into the easy life of an elder statesman, was vigorously involved in the response to the COVID-19 pandemic, prodding the Biden administration to drop intellectual property barriers that prevented pharmaceutical companies from sharing their technologies. It's not just about health security in the senses of defending yourself, he said. It's not just about charity, although that's not so bad. It's also about pragmatic solidarity with those in need of assistance. Paul Edward Farmer Jr. was born on October 26, 1959, in North Adams, Massachusetts. His mother, Ginny Rice Farmer, worked as a supermarket cashier, and his father, Paul Sr., was a salesman and high school math teacher. When Paul was around 12, his father brought an old, bought an old bus and fitted it with bunks, converting it into a mobile home. Paul, his parents, and five siblings spent the next few years traveling, mostly in Florida, living for a time on a boat moored in a bayou. He credited this period with giving him a very compliant GI system, a knack for sleeping anywhere, and an inability to be shy or embarrassed. One summer, he and his family worked alongside Haitian migrant workers picking oranges, listening curiously as they chatted to one another in Creole from atop ladders. That was Paul's first encounter with Haiti, the country that would captivate him in his 20s and then propel him towards a career in public health. After graduating from Duke University, he moved to Haiti, volunteering in Conch, a settlement in the central Atrabonte Plateau of the country. He arrived towards the end of the dictatorship of Jean-Claude Duvalier when Haiti's hospital system was so threadbare the patients had to pay for basic supplies like medical gloves or blood transfusion if they wanted treatment. In a letter to a friend, he wrote that his stint at the hospital wasn't turning out as he is expected. It's not that I'm unhappy working here, the letter excerpted in Mr. Kidder's book said. The problem, the biggest problem, is that it's, the hospital is not for the poor. I'm taken aback. I really am. Everything has to be paid for in advance. Dr. Farmer decided to open a different kind of clinic. He returned to the United States to attend Harvard Medical School and earn a degree in anthropology, but continued to spend much of his time in Conch, returning to Harvard for exams and laboratory work. Over the years, Dr. Farmer raised millions of dollars for an ever-expanding network of community health facilities. He had a contagious enthusiasm and considerable nerve. When Thomas J. White, who owned a large construction company in Boston, asked to meet him, he insisted that the meeting take place in Haiti. Mr. White eventually contributed $1 million in seed money to Partners in Health, which Dr. Farmer founded in 1987, along with Ophelia Dahl, whom he had met volunteering in Haiti, a Duke classmate, Todd Cormick, and a Harvard classmate, Dr. Kim John Kim. In 1996, he married Didi Bertrand, the daughter of a pastor and a school principal in Conge. She was described in Mr. Kidder's book as the most beautiful woman in Conge. She became a researcher for Partners in Health, and survives Dr. Farmer along with their three children, Catherine, Elizabeth, and Sebastian, his mother, his brothers, James and Jeffrey, and his sisters, Katie, Jennifer, and Peggy. The clinic in Haiti, at first a single room, grew over the years to a network of 16 medical centers in the country, with a local staff of almost 7,000. Among them was a teaching hospital in Mirabales, about 40 miles north of Port-au-Prince, opened in 2003, and offering chemotherapy drugs gleaming new 700,000 CT scanner, and three operating rooms with full-time trauma surgeons. There, poor patients with difficult diseases paid a basic fee of around $1.50 per treatment, including medication. Partners in Health also expanded into Rwanda, 
where Dr. Farmer helped the government restructure the country's health system, improving health outcomes in areas like infant mortality and the HIV infection rate. Dr. Farmer died in Butaro, a mountain town on the border of Uganda, where he and Partners in Health collaborated with the Rwandan government to build a complex devoted to health and health education. Dr. Farmer also helped develop new public health approaches in Peru, Russia, Lesotho, among other places. He was particularly proud of the fact that the clinics he helped build were staffed by local doctors and nurses whom he had trained. I'm not cynical at all, he once said. Cynicism is a dead end. That was a very long obituary, um, longer than we normally do on COVID calls, but um, it also was an important one. And it's, it's one that I've read several times in the last 24 hours and has given me a lot of pause. So thank you for bearing with me. I wanna introduce my two guests today uh, that I'm so excited to speak with. My first guest, Dr. Susan Jones, is the distinguished McKnight University professor in ecology, evolution and behavior and also in the history of science, technology, and medicine at the University of Minnesota. Trained first as a doctor of veterinary medicine, Dr. Jones also received a PhD in the history of science and medicine at Penn. Her expertise is the historical ecology of disease, comparative and environmental health, and human-animal relationships. Dr. Jones is the recipient of both a Guggenheim and Fulbright fellowships, and is the author of the 2003 book, Valuing Animals, Veterinarians and Their Patients in Modern America, the 2010 book, Death in a Small Package, a Short History of Anthrax, and dozens of scholarly articles and book chapters. And she's currently working on a global environmental history of plague. Dr. Pratik, Pratik Chakrabarty is the Cullen NEH Chair in History at the University of Houston. He has written extensively on the history of science, medicine, and imperialism in South Asia, the Atlantic world, and the Caribbean from the 18th to the 20th centuries. Dr. Chakrabarty is the author of several stunning books, including Western Science in Modern India, 2004, Materials in Medicine, 2010, Bacteriology in British India, 2012, and the 2020 book, Inscriptions of Nature, Geology and the Naturalization of Antiquity. For several years, he was both the director of the Center for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, the University of Manchester, and editor of the journal Social History of Medicine. Pratik is currently working on the history of post-colonial public health in India and on a project about global vaccine research. And uh, I feel like I work hard and I, I think about both of your work and I don't know when you, when you sleep. Um, it's such a pleasure to see you both, uh, even virtually. It would be better if this was in person. And it's, it's such an honor for me to speak with you today because both of you in the last 20 years have served as mentors to me in some capacity. And so it's just so wonderful to be able to, to talk about all of our mutual research interests, talk about where we are in the pandemic and, and just try to find some voice. Um, I'm, I'm reminded participating in COVID calls um, as I've done several times in the last couple of years about how many experts there are out there and how many voices can contribute to this, this moment that we're in. And, and like probably like most both of you, um, the passing of Paul Farmer yesterday has, has really given me some pause about thinking about how we as global health scholars, and I, I think of you both as leaders in the field of, of thinking about global health and science and medicine and the environment, how are we engaging in the kind of activist social medicine projects that, that Paul was committed to? And, and I've, I've been trying to think about that a lot. So welcome to the program, and I can't wait to speak with you. So um, I want to ask you this the common uh, intray question for COVID calls. Tell us where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. Let's start with you, Susan. Thanks, Jacob, and thanks for that lovely obituary. Um, Paul Farmer's death really has affected us all, and the work needs to be continued. So thank you for that. I'm calling in from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Like most of the U.S., we're on the good side of the Omicron curve right now, with COVID rate in our count down to about 35 daily cases per 100,000. But um, our state's curve has come down a bit more slowly than other eastern, midwestern states with comparable vaccination rates, I think for a couple of reasons. 
Um, we adjoin the Dakotas and Montana, which have had a higher level of incidence. And we also have a similar configuration to some other Midwestern states in that we have some rural areas with low adoption of protective measures, such as vaccination and social distancing and masking. Yeah, it is really interesting. I've been, you know, as as somebody who studies the history of epidemiology, um, you know, numbers matter, but numbers are also tools, political tools, right? And so, you know, yeah. we can see even even in states that seem like they're doing a, a good job in the U.S. and have fairly high vaccine vaccination rates. If you really dig beneath those numbers, what you find, and e- even in states like Vermont and Maine and New Hampshire and states like Minnesota, you still, if you if you dig behind the numbers, you can still see pockets where 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 there is very low vaccination rates. So that that certainly is an interesting insight. Thank you, Pratik. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, thanks for inviting me, and it's a real pleasure to join you and Susan. Um, and I'm a, g- a great fan of your work. I've read your work, and and um, this pandemic is changing our uh, ways of thinking about history of medicine. So it's a wonderful opportunity also to hear both of you speak about the pandemic itself. And we are still coming to terms with uh, Paul Farmer's death, and I think it was a wonderful um, opportunity that he presented and. What his work has given us in classrooms and in our discussions is a very clear way of seeing that disease or pandemics, and it is particularly relevant today, is not just a biological phenomenon. It is a social, structural, economic phenomenon. And that gives us so much to work with. He has allowed that us that wealth of uh, to tap into without his work had such clarity and such persuasiveness that, that we don't have to prove that anymore. You know that we can take this forward, and that's his gift to us as historians of medicine, as also other public health officials, those who are working. So, it's it's a traumatic time for anybody involved, but it's also a very stimulating time, um, and trauma can be stimulating in a negative way. So, um, as far as the COVID nineteen situation, I think the cases are. I'm not exactly on top of the figures now. When I arrived in uh, mid January. The cases were going very high in Houston. Uh, the cases have dropped quite dramatically. And I do not know, and it would be interesting to know what the factor is behind the drops and whether what we read in the statistics, as, you, as Jacob, you mentioned, that what to read in the statistics. Is it because of vaccination? Is it because of um, social distancing? Is it because of mask wearing? Mask wearing uh, in Houston, as I see, is... Um, varied let's put it this way some places are stricter than others um, but i think uh, as a general rule um, there is in university areas where i am mostly there is a more general uh, tendency towards mask wearing in classrooms um, and in other social social spaces in universities so we have pockets i think uh, where these practices are more uh, common than others yes yeah, it's it's one of the um, this very interesting phenomenons about pandemics that you know all, the three of us um, study, but then to live through is is a is a pretty jarring um, reality to know that we we as individuals experience pandemics in, in very hyper local ways in our communities where we see these different pockets, but we inherently know that we're connected. So that I know you know I can I can speak with Susan, which I've done on the phone. A dozen or so times in the last two years, and talk about the situation there, where I can, you know, listen to COVID calls, which I do um, uh, all the time, and 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 see different differing realities, and and that is just so fascinating to me. How uh, what we know epistemologically about our reality, the pandemic is just it's it's not the same from any two vantage points right now, and that's just in one country, let alone thinking about big global conversations that that I want to have with you two to, here today. So, Pratik, I want to start. Um, I want to start with you, and and neither one of you would be surprised. I want to start um, this discussion about COVID by talking about plague. Um, so, in in early August, in year one of COVID, two thousand twenty, you wrote this piece for the India Forum called "COVID nineteen and the Specters of Colonialism." And in that piece, you discussed. I really liked it, so thank you for writing it. And and in that piece, you you discussed the complicated ways that. The legacies of, of technological solutions in solving pandemics, vaccines and drugs in dealing in the late nine from the late 19th century with the third plague pandemic in India 
were overlapping with what you saw happening, particularly in India with COVID-19. And in that article, you argued that the draconian measures that were resurrected with the 1897 Epidemic Diseases Act harmed the most vulnerable in India. And and, and I found that to be really a fascinating piece um, because I too was alarmed when I saw in the in the headlines of the news, like, this 1897 act, which I've studied as you have as well, to see it being used politically at the beginning of COVID, it was really quite shocking. So thank you for that piece. But um, but I'm wondering, you know, we've come a long way from since August 2020, and there's been a lot of move away in a lot of places. Um, certainly in the U.S., um, certainly where you came from in the U.K. Um, and the situation in India has changed as well. How have your thinking? Has your thinking changed on this argument from what you saw in August 2020 to what we're seeing now? Thanks, Jacob. There's so many points in this, and I'm trying to, you know, there's a whole mass of issues you have opened up uh, very kindly. And thanks for reading my piece. Um, and I think it's important as historians to recognize the moment that was written and where we are now. So that was written uh, before we had any kind of vaccinations, uh, when social distancing was the key or way to, uh, in, in the government uh, regulations, was the key way to um, restrict uh, the spread of the, of the virus. Um, and what we saw in India, uh, and I think in different other places as well, is um, the way that uh, restrictions were imposed were very class-based. Um, and that is how the older Colonial Act and and we have a history in India, in post-colonial India, of colonial acts being resurrected for very post-colonial purposes. And that just reflects the post-colonial continuity of the class structures. So what, what was done was um, almost um, the civilizing Rio kind of scenario, where the poor and the others were being taken out of the spaces by these restrictions brought about. And these uh, spaces were being protected bar for the educated uh, for the middle class and, and the rich and that structure has kind of remained even in uh, india is now the heaven of gated communities so that kind of gated communities uh, labor is outside so those rings of protection have remained and those have legitimized given a medical justification of class and caste based restrictions to be continued in that in that respect the other, the where we have changed or moved on is we have come to the era of vaccination, which we were not in that period in, in August 2020. And that has, I think, changed a lot of things. And I would be very interested to hear your thoughts. And I'm quite confused about how to write the history of vaccinations now, because the way we approached history of vaccination, both in the colonial um, Indian situation, um, David Arnold's work, fascinating works of, and in uh, smallpox vaccination and compulsory vaccination acts in the 19th century in, in, in North America, in Europe, is that these were the compulsory vaccination acts, the vaccination procedures were negative um, structures imposed on people's will. Now, we are beginning to see anti or we have seen anti-vaccination uh, resistances, which would resonate in the 19th century as almost to quote unquote the recent one, freedom movements. But politically, they are more right-wing. So this has changed. So what we saw as resistance in the 19th century, we see as assertion of right-wing politics now. And that, and uh, so that is an important problem that we have struggled with. How do we write the history of vaccination and large-scale vaccination in the future by the state? We are, all, as historians, we are almost now in support of large-scale vaccination. And hasn't that changed how we wrote our history of the 19th century vaccination? So that is an important, what has happened in India uh, in the vaccination scenario, because the piece is about, uh, uh, the piece you refer to is about India, is that vaccination has been very patchy, particularly uh, the booster or the second phase of vaccination. And that has brought about uh, communities of vaccinated people and communities of unvaccinated people. And that is probably the reality to remain the structural reality to remain of who would be vaccinated. And um, when the booster vaccination was going on um, and people were craving, I just felt that it was a privilege uh, 
to think about boosters uh, in 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 various parts of the world to think about where large sections of the world have no infrastructure to go uh, to have booster vaccination so uh, while restrictions of people's movements were much more strictly imposed similar uh, strict measures or strict or um, large scale measures of vaccination were not in, uh, brought about and that raises questions about what is the government's uh, intentions about restrictions of movement but yet not following it up with vaccination so that sorry i'm not giving you an answer but i'm just saying that we are in a much more confused state as yeah. scholars of history of medicine and as observers of public health now than before I agree, and I, I um, one of the things that really resonates with with me from what you said there, Pratik, is um, in in my teaching too. So in the last two years, you know, my regular state of classes includes uh, history of public health, history of disease. I teach some, you know, British Empire colonialism classes, and it's been really hard to teach some of the normal things that I teach during the pandemic, which are like, here, here, are, here are these examples in the past when the state has reached too far. And here's some examples of the past when overt public health, you know, good has done bad. And, and, and what's interesting is like, I feel like some of the inherent um, parts of the field of the history of public health and medicine now could seem really right wing in the political environment, at least in the U.S. and in, in, in a lot of Western Europe right now. So that, that, that definitely resonates with me. The other thing that, that I'll say in, just in response, and then I, I want to bring Susan in, is, is thinking about plague, and I've been thinking about plague a lot because it has to do a lot with my current project, is there's this moment in the 1890s in, in British India and in, and in South Africa where we see this, this huge mobilization around controlling bodies and controlling spaces. And, and then a lot of that draconian measure does fade away in the next 10, 20, 30 years. There's like, there's this moment, right? A pandemic moment, certainly. Um, and, and I wonder if there's some analogies to plague and plague control that we might look towards as, as COVID, which certainly isn't going to go away in the same way that plague just didn't go away um, after 1903 or 1905. Um, the public health response changed as the as the social perception of the crisis changed. And, and I think we're like, at least in the U.S. and what I'm following in Western Europe, we seem to be at the precipice of something really changing, maybe not epidemiologically, although certainly Omicron is, is trending towards um, a, a better direction in terms of morbidity and mortality. But in terms of the cultural understanding of COVID right now, it seems like there are so many people who are calling it endemic, are calling it over, are calling for a return to normal. The science doesn't back that up. The epidemiology, the daily death doesn't back that up. The hot, you know, I spoke to two um, pediatric clinicians yesterday who, who, who should be the people we're listening to about the pandemic. And to them, it's not. Um, this pandemic is, is nowhere near over. But it does seem, and this is something that, that you know, I think scholars like the two of you have really nailed in your research for, for previous historical examples, is that something can really fundamentally change in the cultural consciousness that impacts public health approaches. And, and that, to me, is such a fascinating question as we, as we think about how the pandemic's changing. So, Susan, I want to bring you in here. So, you, you've, you've written on this recently. So, in, in a co-authored piece you did in 2019 for PNAS, Living with Plague, Lessons from the Soviet Union's Anti-Plague System, you and your co-authors argue that historical evidence from the former, former Soviet Union in the 20th century suggests that controlling zoonosis, such as plague, requires ecological-based control, control strategies rather than eradication ones. And, and, and I read that when it came out and then I didn't think about it. And then when I wanted to speak with you in critique today, I went and read that again and I read it in completely different ways. Um, and it's really interesting because I think there's so much discussion right now in the public health community around the world 
of very different approaches to COVID. I mean, there's still some countries in the world that are that are still trying to follow a COVID zero plan um, rather than a, a control environment, human animal strategy. And so what is what is your work that you're doing right now on plague um, and, and long plague, I, I must say, have to tell us right now? It's a warning, frankly. Um, plague is not gone, as you said. Plague is very much um, still around in the world today. Um, some of the uh, biggest uh, problems with plague are places where um, people live close to populations of animals um, that host it regularly. And I think we're going to see a similar thing with COVID. Um, historically speaking, and I would argue in many cases today, eradication is profoundly a political strategy. Eradication sounds worthy, it mobilizes resources in controllable ways, and it's reassuring because it reifies the notions that humans can absolutely control non-human nature and our place in it. So this article that you referred to um, describes a historical event. It's, it's an all-out attempt to eradicate plague from the parts of the Soviet Union in which it was causing problems. Um, and this was the single greatest attempt at eradication that we know of in one particular region. Money, scientific knowledge, and the labor of tens of thousands of people were enlisted in this centrally planned and controlled project. And although it did reduce human cases of plague, it was successful in that way, um, they're still not down to zero, but it did reduce human cases of plague, but it failed in its goal of completely eradicating it, wiping it out. Now, what it did do was it certainly contributed to the Soviet government's overall plans for turning the plague zones, most of which were in the periphery, sort of along the border with China, Mongolia, Eastern Siberia, what today is Central Asia, Kazakhstan, the independent nations. Um, the Soviet government's plans for those places were, were colonial plans for turning these plague zones into productive agricultural regions. So eradication programs, to me, do things like bolstering state power by providing justification for the types of draconian measures that Pratik has discussed. And um, as our research has shown, history warns us over and over again that absolute eradication expends a huge amount of resources, doesn't meet its own goal, and often results in damage to the most vulnerable human populations and to the environment as well. People who must live close to the land know better. So they figured out ways to live with plague, and that is the source of the title of our article. And we must learn from them. And it's looking like we're going to have to learn to live with SARS-CoV-2 for some time to come. For diseases like COVID that move between animals and humans, it's crucial to understand its ecology and to see it in this way. And I do agree um, to a large extent with a recent paper published by Bernstein et al. in Science Advances that says we shouldn't wait for humans to get sick to be taking action. We should be allocating more resources to global public health. So the COVID pandemic has really been a wake-up call. Yeah, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm reminded um, when you when you when you when you were speaking, Susan, um, about this example of of controlling plague um, in 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 the former Soviet Union across Central Asia, about how how much of a powerful historical example that is when we think about and and, and I haven't I I want to do this, but I don't I don't think I have the brain power or the time or the the sleep to do it. But to start thinking about the history of the history of COVID and how historians have responded to the pandemic. But I think that there's a history there that needs to be said, too, because if you remember back to early 2020, it, it was all Spanish flu and it, it was it was a little bit of cholera sprinkled in there. 
Um, but it, it wasn't the kind of stories that you're talking about. It wasn't the, you know, the, the, it wasn't a broad geography. It was as if pandemics in the past behave. It was something that really bothered me, actually. It was as if pandemics in the past just behave in these spatial and temporal ways where they're just, they're just stuck in a moment. They're, they're 18. I mean, we do this in our own work too. We say cholera was 1831, 1832, or it was 1848, 49. You know, we, we, we bound them in time and space that, that, that ignores and deprivileges more environmental, more ecological and more non-Western ways of thinking. And I think, you know, decolonizing, if we could use that term, um, pandem pandemic thinking is something that so many scholars, I think, are, are doing, and the, and the two of you have done. Um, but but we need to talk about that more as we are, are faced with a very different, perhaps, COVID nineteen moving forward. Um, Pratik, I want to I want to bring you back into the conversation and talk a little bit about something that's been bothering me that I'm hoping you can you can help me figure out, and and I just want to hear your thoughts on. Um, and that is the question of the laboratory and where the laboratory prefigures in discussions around COVID-19. So your book, um, Bacteriology in British India, is one, just one of my favorite books of the last decade. And it's at its 10-year anniversary, so I can't say that after this year. Um, but in that book, you do this really interesting job of trying to show how colonialism refracted laboratory practices um, and, and I'm really interested to hear um, what you have to say about where the laboratory is right now around COVID and what we think about laboratory practices. Are you still with us, Pratik, or have you frozen? I think he's frozen. So we can continue, Susan. I'll come back to that question. Sounds okay. good. So, um, so I want to then continue with what you were talking about with plague and, and zoonosis. So I would argue that, and I think you will agree that, I hope you will agree, and if you won't, then please, we can disagree, that we have failed as a global community to understand COVID-19 in zoonotic and ecological terms. So there was a moment early on in the pandemic that I, mean, I know you were following, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners of this program were following, where there were there was a kind of xenophobic, xenophobic moment in the West of blaming um, practices, human animal practices, quote unquote, wet markets um, in, in the Wuhan province for the origin story of this disease. But 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 that sort of faded as there were these conspiracy theories of the manufacture of plague of COVID in a, in a Wuhan laboratory. And and I want to bring Pratik's back with us. So I'll bring you in in a minute, Pratik, to talk about the laboratory. But I've been following this other thread that seems to be happening about once a week. Um, and, and I know that you've been following probably much better than I have, which is COVID-19 reservoirs and animals. COVID-19 and deer and mink and hyenas and dogs. That, that discussion about COVID and animals hasn't reached the level of popular discourse yet. And I would... I would throw out there that that is a huge detriment to that's a failure of, of ours as a global community to understand this disease. So you're, you know, one of the world's leading experts on human animal diseases. So tell us why we need to understand COVID as as a human animal disease. Well, Jacob, I'm not going to disagree with you. Definitely not. But I will say throughout the pandemic, we have had to focus on the acute human situation. It's understandable that delving into the complex ecology of zoonotic coronaviruses hasn't been, you know, front and center in the public discourse. However, perhaps the time has come to change that. Uh, scientific evidence, as you mentioned, is steadily accumulating that like influenza, corona and other viruses, SARS-CoV-2 is likely to be widespread in multiple species. And that includes those that are close to humans. So not just pets, but commensal species of all types, rodents, for example. Um, and then I think it's fair that, um, you know, people in wealthier countries are, are very interested in, do my pets carry it? Is it possible for it to be transmitted? Are these animals just fomites? 
traits or are they actual, you know, are they just sort of transmitters of the virus or are they actually harboring the virus? Is the virus growing in their bodies and then spreading to us, right? So that is kind of what we've heard um, a little bit in the popular discourse. What's changing now and what has to change now is this um, idea of understanding just how widespread this is. And the fact is that it is humans that have given it to these other species. Now, I don't like the term spill back. The term spill over refers to um, a disease that is probably epidemic or we say epizootic in the animal world um, in an animal population that then spills over into humans that come into contact with those animals. The term spill back has been used to say, okay, this is going back to the animals from humans. I think these are all spillovers because this is a, an ecological system. These are back and forth transmissions. So for example, um, take wild deer populations. You mentioned deer. Um, wild deer populations are ubiquitous in U.S. cities as well as in rural areas. Um, and these populations in the Midwestern United States currently have anywhere from 6 to 30% SARS-CoV-2 infection rates in the Midwest. And the scientific evidence is clear. Humans are spreading SARS-CoV-2 to other species. Now, this is important because it means more opportunities for the virus to mutate in unexpected ways and to spill over into human populations again. And it this is what viruses do, right? They mutate, they try to expand, they radiate, they try to expand their evolutionary and ecological space. So reframing SARS-CoV-2 infection in more than human multi-species terms, I think, would change our thinking in several ways. But I just want to mention two things. First, that spillover of viruses from animals to humans is the major source of pandemic risk moving forward. And second, that absolute eradication of this virus will be impossible because it is too widespread. So we return to that original point. A smallpox type eradication campaign will not work. Reframing SARS-CoV-2 as an ecological problem instead tells us to allocate resources toward broader objectives, monitoring how and where the virus travels and interrupting its transmission to human populations. And this includes vaccination and key, it improves living conditions. Improvement of living conditions and social medicine are absolutely crucial to this. More broadly, this conceptual reframing, I think, us to consider broader environmental practices that have brought us into an era of pandemic risk. And that includes intensified agriculture. Um, this is the story in Kazakhstan where I've done quite a bit of my work and the destruction of habitats in other parts of the world, such as tropical forests. Human, animal, and environmental health are linked. And at the same time, we have to recognize that vulnerable human populations and areas of biodiversity that we need to protect tend to overlap. So this needs to be a global commitment. Yeah, if you could just get on that for us. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I think at some level, um, this kind of thinking, this, this environmental, ecological, more than human approach somehow needs to get in the public discourse. How do you, how do you think we can do that? Very good question. Um, I think humans are more interested in humans, right? And we've all lived through and are still living through a rather acute experience. There will be trauma associated with it. There already is. Um, I think what we have to do is we have to emphasize we are citizens of the living world and the non-living world, right? And, and this is a sort of ecological way of looking at things that is well understood in many parts of the world. Right. The United States and Western Europe tends to be a little different in this way. Go to Central Asia, parts of East Asia, parts of South Asia, um, and definitely in the sort of overall scientific framing in Russian science. 
Um, the idea of the biogeosmos, we are all citizens of the earth, um, is the basis for this understanding. So I, I think it's a difficult thing to do, but I think we, we just simply have to keep after the popular version of, and I know, you know, there are many journalists who are doing this good work, Ed Young, people like that, um, who are just doing a great um, job of bringing this to the public attention. This is not something that's happening to us. This is something that we have done and we are doing. And so we must understand that the implications of our actions are not just environmental, they are also about human health. Wow, that's really powerful. Uh, I gotta I gotta sit on that. I gotta let that percolate. Thank you. So Pratik, you're 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 back with us. Thank you. Thank you for jumping back on. So so you gave a keynote um, in 2020 for the British Society for the History of Science entitled Do We Need a Global History of Science? And this this follows up on on the point that 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 Susan was talking about about reframing reframing our pandemic understandings around more global and environmental and ecological changes. And in, in that, in that uh, keynote, you argued that understanding the modern hydras of climate change, epidemics, and racism requires a re reorientation of our thinking, even within the field of the history of science um, and medicine and technology, um, about a critique of European secular visions of nature and ones that frame the entirety of the global South as vernacular and ethno. And, and I want to bring you in here to have you talk a little bit about how, you know, at one level, I think what, what Susan and I were just talking about is we've tended to view COVID in a, even in the popular consciousness as, as very human centered and very local. And we need to reframe that as global, but I'm reminded too about your work um, and this recent call of saying like, well, even our field needs to do that too in the kind of ways that, that we approach these issues. So I wanted to bring you in here to give, give us your thoughts on, 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 the, on, on some of the scholarly approaches and then maybe how they're impacting some of these popular misconceptions as well. Uh, thank you, uh, Jacob. I'm sorry, I lost connection. Um, I've been moving around the house and I'm trying to find the best place. Uh, I think I found it for the moment. Um, thanks. I, I think um, the question is related to a question you were raising before I lost connection. It's about decolonizing the discipline. Um, and I think I'm, I'm going to connect those two um, and how I see uh, this uh, pandemic is uh, helping us to understand the decolonization of health, medicine and science. Um, and what, one of the interesting uh, points, and I'm incredibly indebted to um, Susan's work on on, uh, on making this context the wider environmental uh, politics within which, and it is politics within which to understand pandemics. And one of the points of the decolonization here is that there was already a wealth of knowledge um, in Africa, in India, in terms of malaria research, trypanosomiasis, plague, where the relationship between humans, animals, and environments that had been deeply studied by historians from the 1960s, and nobody referred to that. So that so the, uh, so that deep knowledge about those had problematic relationships about tropicalizing the tropics. That but there was a deeper understanding uh, historiographically and also in terms of parasitology um, and tropical medicine about the relations between humans and non-humans, and that uh, you know that wider connection that existed. That knowledge. Um, base uh, from the 1960s historians, but even before uh, public health studies about relations between rats and humans in India and um, cattle and uh, animals in in Africa, and so it's 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 that wealth of knowledge is missing if we do not understand uh, the wider knowledge that the, the decolonizing needs for these disciplines that we constantly trying to look at them from certain perspectives and lose out on the other perspective. The, the other point about uh, why de decolonizing is important in understanding the pandemic is that it is a global phenomenon. Um, and like plague, like uh, most other uh, uh, pandemics, it is a global phenomenon. Um, and how do we understand those global um, orient uh, lo locations of this? And what is 
useful to understand, and that's connected to my talk. Um, you have read and listened to too many things that I have <laughs> produced, <laughs> and so um, so that talk it was about rejecting this tendency of seeing the non-West or whatever category you want to use as something special. That and giving it criteria like ethno, vernacular, and different. So so and and I was challenging this category that if that what happens in West is science and what happens in the non-West is ethnoscience or 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 a variation of that. And my point is it's the same. And a true global history of science wouldn't need the word global to it because it is global by intrinsic value. And the example that I'm, I'm going to give about the pandemic is you see in this pandemic in terms of mask wearing, in terms of vaccination, the ethno, ethnic differences are not so critical. Um, there has been less anti-mask or anti-vaccination protests which have in the in India or other places than in the West. So, uh, and, and historically there is a tendency to see that in India when vaccination started, and I've written it about it extensively in my book, when large-scale vaccination started in the late 19th century and early 20th century in India, Indians were up against vaccination. And that was a myth that was developed by the British who had their own res uh, reservations about vaccination. Indians did not protest as much about vaccination as in Europe or, or other places, uh, not anymore. So there is, there is no classical ethnic reaction to vaccination. There's a class problem about vaccination and that is, is a, there is a, there is an ethnic perspective, but that ethnic perspective doesn't reside outside Europe. That resides within Europe. So, so that, so the whole point about decolonizing the discipline is to understand it's the same plague. It's the same virus. It's the same disease. And to understand that often, if you open a standard book of AIDS history, you get the North American study of AIDS. And you do not get the African story of AIDS. While, and almost there are two AIDS. There are two stories of AIDS. And that is why Paul Farmer's work is so critical that he brings the other AIDS in front of the North American AIDS. So, so, there is, so why are these two stories? Why are these two narratives? Um, and if you study deeply, there shouldn't be these two narratives. And it is important to study these within that wider platform and not attach uh, cultural uh, connotations to them where it doesn't fit. Thank you. Yeah, but I think like I, I totally, I, I, I 100% agree with you, but, but I almost look around and I'm like, there are two COVIDs right now, or there are three COVIDs or four COVIDs. And, you know, and I think about like global vaccine equity right now around the world. And, you know, we're, I, I got an email yesterday from my university administration saying that on starting on Monday, the 28th, we're basically abandoning all COVID protocols. Masks are just going to be, you know, if you want to wear them, cool. If you don't, cool. Everything's fine. Um, you know, we're, we're heading in that direction in the West. Some places are already there. And, and yet around the world, there's very little prospect of, of widespread vaccination campaigns in 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 so many places and I, and in that inequity to me is something that is is going to have a really long tail one and it's two is going to make the reality of exactly what you said about there not actually being two aids or two different covids but but one where i think like the perception in the west which we've seen with with plague, we've seen with with cholera, with typhoid, with 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 hiv aids is there's one set of disease for for the West and there's one for so many other parts in the world. And it just seems like we are in this moment where we're spiraling towards towards that 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 dichotomy again. And so I wonder how we as as, as historians who know this pattern, um, you know, know what Susan called at the beginning of this program, the you know, the the warning signs, um, what do we what do we do about it right now? Because I think, you know, so, if, if if I would have told both of you in 2019 that we were going to have a you know a global pandemic that within two years was going to be you know five six million deaths worldwide and a hundred and one million in the U.S. you probably could have given me the playbook you know you would have said this would have happened this would have happened this would have happened this would have happened um, that's been that's been an emotional reckoning that I think our field is going to have to deal with at some point and I hope that we hit it straight on and we talk in real and emotional ways about it because it's been hard to process for me every day seeing the world uh, unfold in problematic ways 
that I would have predicted based on my research. Um, but we seem to be at a precipice of a, of a new moment where COVID's not going away. And, and COVID could be a disease that in six months starts to ravage parts of, of Southeast Asia and Africa and, and people in the U.S. are going to be COVID's over. There's going to be two COVID. So how do we as a field get on top of that? Because you're absolutely right. There, there isn't. We need to, we need to think globally. And as you say, non-globally, Glo- the global shouldn't exist in some ways, as you say. But how do we do that intellectual work? I'll, I'll have a quick reaction, response to that. I think it's a very important point. But I think, um, and I'm, I think there are two COVIDs, but it's not West and non-West COVID. It is even West. There are deep pockets of health inequalities. And that is where, so, so this is the pattern of global capitalism that the wealthy in India are almost as wealthy as the wealthy in the, in the West. And they would have the structural uh, basis of protecting themselves almost with vaccinations and other drugs. And they, we are going into the post-vaccination era of drugs uh, protection against COVID. So the deep health inequalities that reside within the West, and that is why I'm rejecting that uh, two COVID in West and non-West ethnic cultural narrative. And so COVID will reside. I'm not going to make a forecast, but I'm, this is the, the history that we have studied, that the structural inequalities within the West itself and the growing structural inequalities within the West and in, in, in India, Africa, is where the two COVIDs will reside. So it is not necessarily two COVIDs. It's necessarily the kind of social systems that we are creating within which COVID will decide. So I understand your point, but I'm asking you to understand that these are not necessarily uh, cultural realities. These are social realities. And I think in honor of Paul Farmer, that is an important point to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. And I think about like, you know, another way to like, to, to twist what you just said is something that I think it's been very frustrating to see just in the US context is where there are deep pockets of anti-vaccination, they don't just follow very clear lines. They're, they're, they're entangled, right? Where, where you're seeing, um, you know, non-mask wearing and, and, and anti-vaccination. Susan, what's your, what's your take on, on this, uh, this, this, gl- this big question about global health and global scholarship and um, maybe a, a question to pose to you and then get Pratik's response to end our program today is, is how do you think the field of the history of science and medicine is going to change as a result of COVID? Like, I think we're already starting to see it, but, but how do you think that, that our, our questions are going to change? Well, first, thank you, Pratik. Um, It's such a poignant thing that you said, and I agree completely. Um, Inequalities, inequities, they are structural problems and they're built into structures around the world. And I, I agree. I think that is the frame in which we need to be thinking about um, what COVID's going to continue to look like. And I think lived experience changes us all, right? And historians are no exception. Um, I don't know that we can predict what will happen in our fields in the future, but Pratik has already mentioned, you know, some of the um you know, the the canon that is likely to fall or some of the ways in which we interpret um, events is changing because of our experiences of COVID. And Pratik mentioned um, the um, sort of uh, resistance to vaccination and other um, and other things that now are, you know, more to the right in terms of political framing, uh, which is very different than um, what we have generally seen in in the canon of the history of medicine. Um, I think for better or for worse, history has been mobilized as a guide to our responses to this pandemic. And I think that we incur a responsibility with that. And I hope that we will take critiques critique seriously that as historians, we're going to try to get beyond the Western European conceptualization of nature even, and do the hard, humbling work of creating histories from many views and not just the canon in which many of my generation were trained in 
Western Europe and in the U.S. Yeah, and I think like there's there's something to be said there too of like maybe you know as COVID continues, we need the voice, we need those voices in 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 public discourse um, as well to help guide us in this this what, what we might say is is you know what I think is a kind of new phase of this pandemic. Pratik, you want to you want to give us a last thought here? Oh, I didn't expect it to be the last thought. I'll just um, share some of the struggles, and I think we are all struggling to f- figure out how to write histories of uh, public health at the moment. And I think one of the patterns we are seeing, and I'm not going into the debate about whether it's an endem- uh, pandemic or an end- uh, endemic disease. I think we have to accept that they two exist simultaneously. It can and historically have existed simultaneously. A pandemic can remain endemic and, and um, in that pattern. But I think what we are definitely seeing is um, COVID is becoming normalized. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. But it is we are learning to live with it um, in various ways, structurally, other ways. We are not going back to various social practices that we had. Um, also normalized that it's going to exist in society. And uh, like the structural uh, blindness, we don't see diseases anymore because it doesn't affect us. So that normalization is also taking place or will take place increasingly as some of us, the privileged ones, become more protected from this pandemic. We will begin not to see those who will continue to be uh, affected by the pandemic or not just this pandemic or other pandemics. So what we are beginning to see is a phase almost two years from uh, where we were is a normalization of COVID-19. And um, and I think uh, Susan's critique or plea almost is fundamental is to reevaluate our relationship with the wider structural realities and and understand and not try for the abnormal modes of eradication, because that is an impossible dream, particularly in the COVID case, because it's not as uh, stable. The virus is not uh, nowhere as stable as the smallpox one. It will never be uh, eradicated in the same way. That's right. And I mean, the other reckoning that that I'll just, um, you know, I'll ask Susan to comment one last comment on because we have, we have another couple of minutes is, you know, I think we're also going to have to, I know I have been sort of doing this on the fly is, is reevaluating our teaching as well. And, and that's something that I've, I've seen virtually very little, if any, discussions. And I know we're all doing it and we're all reckoning with, you know, we're still living in a pandemic crisis, but, you know, reckoning with how we teach um, about this as well. And in, in sort of in full, how does, how does COVID, how does the COVID-19 pandemic in, in full, get enfolded in, into our narratives, not just in our research narratives, but in our teaching as well and in pedagogy and, you know, that's something that I think we, we're all going to have to come to terms with as well. One last point, Susan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, here in Minneapolis, we experienced COVID at the same time as we experienced the murder of Mr. George Floyd and the aftermath of that. And it was at that point that many of us said, all right, I'm never going to teach the same way again. And I was one of those people who um, just completely went back to ground zero with my teaching and began to think more about the lived experience of students, the things that really matter. Um, And in my teaching, um, I not only kind of converted my course to a student-run course and to a a more of an anti-racism point of view, um, but I also argued that, and I teach the history of ecology and environmentalism, and we study a lot of environmental problems, including disease problems. And I argue now that many of the solutions to so-called wicked problems are not technocratic, but instead are the fruits of local and regional work around the world. So I've really begun, I'm I'm a student now (laughs) of living with around the world. And I brought that into my teaching. And I think it has completely revolutionized the way my students see these problems, the way they see their responsibilities in the world. Um, You know, this generation, they're facing a lot. They're facing climate change. They're facing the pandemic. Um, Fighting that anxiety and turning it into, yes, you can make a difference, is one of the responsibilities of higher education now. And this is um, one way in which I've tried to approach it, but I am still learning. This is an, an ongoing project. 
Yeah, me too. I think reevaluation is the, the the name of the game right now, and I'm certainly feeling that as well. So, um, Dr. Susan Jones, Dr. Pratik Chakrabarty, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you both today and and to learn from you, people who I've I've long learned from and and continue to learn from. So, thank you so much. Please join me tomorrow on COVID calls at four o'clock Eastern time, and I'll, my guests will be Dr. Kathleen Bashinsky and Dr. Johanna Mellis. Thank you.